Renthal Street Clip-On Handlebars are premium race-spec clip-ons available in nine different options, two different offsets, and six different diameters, all developed in collaboration with top-level race teams. Use the Fit My Bike tool on Renthal.com to find the correct fitment for your bike. On this week's Paddock Pass podcast, we have a special chat about smooth, slick components of MotoGP that are full of hot, irrepressible air. So I cannot think of two better journalists to join me for this latest episode. Hello, Neil Morrison. Hello, Adam Wheeler. And hello, David Emmett. You've been to some secret places in the course of the last week. Uh, so secret that uh, even employees of the company which I visited haven't even been there. So, yes, it was very interesting. But you're talking about uh, uh, being slick. Just before the podcast started, we were all on about how um, uh, we uh, none of us have had a shave and we all need one. So uh, I'm not quite sure about slick. Yeah, this is grizzled before the season starts. Imagine what we'll be like midway through. <laughs> Thankfully, only uh, our family watches uh, on the YouTube videos. So, uh, yeah, audio-wise, you don't have to worry about the state of our respective selves. Um, I'm Adam Wheeler, and I do have my own secret trip coming up, actually, with a swift journey to Zavulia this week. But um, first, we got Dave's account of his exclusive trip to Clermont-Ferrand, uh, a rare interview with MotoGP legend Danny Pedrosa. Uh, a big thanks to Sarah Kinraid and the Red Bull KTM crew for helping with that. Uh, and some perspectives on Jorge Martin, uh, a potential 2024 world champion. Uh, a couple of other topics as well as the MotoGP season starts. Uh, as you heard at the top of the show, rental.com is the place to go to upgrade your street bike and look for those perfect high quality accessories. There's a ton to choose from. We're also pleased to have Fly Racing back in us again in 2024. Check out some of the best, smartest, and most protective off-road helmets with the Formula S, a lid that contains sensors and crucially won't let you down in the event of an emergency. Curious to know more? Then two clicks on flyracing.com will have you sorted. Right, Dave, uh, what was all the secrecy with Michelin? Well, the secrecy was um, that they showed us how they make... MotoGP tires, and they don't show anyone that. There are genuinely a lot of people inside of Michelin who don't do this. They have uh, three special machines which produce the tires. Um, they're laid down sort of layer by layer, if you like, with uh, rubber and cords um, mixed, yeah, sort of extruded onto uh, onto a tire, sort of printed onto a tire. Um they feed in sort of lots of thin strips of various compounds and it allows them to construct the tires very, very concisely. I mean, the reason for inviting a bunch of journalists was basically just because Michelin were getting tired of lots and lots of complaints. One of the things that came up was, uh, you know, riders only ever complain about the tires and never say anything good about it. But I mean, that's the loss of any single tire supplier. I think I've said this lots and lots of times before. Um, you know, they, you don't get praise until you decide to leave. And then everyone says, oh, you made such fantastic tires. Um, but it was, it was, it was genuinely fascinating. It was incredible, the precision with which these things are, uh, uh put together. They can only produce, uh, each of these machines can only produce about 30 tires a day. And they have three of these machines. So they're only producing about a hundred times a day. Um, they, uh, when they come out of the machine, they, uh, they're, they're visually inspected, they're scanned, they're x-rayed, um, they're tested to see if they're balanced and true. And they also, uh, basically one out of every hundred, one percent of the tires, they destructively test, which basically means, you know, cutting it apart and seeing uh, if it genuinely has been put together. So <clears throat> they were really keen to show us their quality control, uh, the way that it's managed. And um, that was genuinely fascinated the, the the fact that that 
also it's just rear tires which are done like this at the moment one of the things they want to do with the 2025 front tires um the the, the current front tires are done the old uh, are done the old way um and the reason that it's only the rear tires is because it's all about performance um a performance is so uh sensitive to or the rear tire is where a lot of the performance come from. And so, and so any deviations will start to make a difference. Um, and Michelin's entire efforts is, is focused on making sure that these uh, tires are as consistent as, as, as humanly possible. Um, just doing everything, everything they can to, to make sure that the, that, you know, that everything is, is consistent and the amount of control, the amount of checking, uh, that went into it. I was genuinely impressed at how they do it. Now, of course, the trouble is they leave the factory and then they're put into trucks and they're put into, I mean, they are, the, the uh, all of the transport and storage is conditioned. But from there on, Michelin don't have so much control over it. They have less control over what uh, what happens to the uh, to the tires, um, and that's that's where it all goes. Sort of, uh, or that's where inconsistencies can uh, could come in. So um, yeah, it was it was genuinely it was genuinely a really really fascinating trip, but it was also interesting to learn about how they build the tires, and design the tires, and, and uh, choose which compounds to 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 use where, and all the rest of it. Dave, you say you're you were convinced by the quality control. I mean, we hear riders telling us that they've had a duff tire, that they cannot explain the reason for a drop in performance compared to say the previous day or the previous week or the previous year at a Grand Prix. Did you see anything in the process that seems to indicate, you know, when Michelin move these tires or they freight them to another part of the world, that there is a chance that things could go wrong? I mean, are, are they really that delicate? Uh, what came up again and again is how, um, I mean, riding these riders are so incredibly sensitive um, and that everything is so incredibly close that the tiniest details make, make a huge, huge difference. And so what came up, uh, 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 what they showed us was that um, a lot of it can just be very, very small kinds of, it can be very, very small uh, feel. So, um, for example, they got a they got a hot tire out and a cold tire out, and they the, the cold tire they you know they let us actually sort of punch it and try to squeeze it, and it's just a rock solid thing, you know, it just doesn't move. Um, and then you get a hot a, a, a hot tire on, uh, out, which is sort of ninety degrees or one hundred degrees out of the out of tire warmers, and also I think they actually have like a, a a heated place which got it up to proper temperature, you know, one hundred and ten, one hundred twenty degrees. And you cannot, I mean, the thing is, it's, it's almost like putty. I mean, you can squash it and bounce it and, and move it around. And it, it was, the, 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 the difference was shocking. Um, and they talked about the difference uh, between, so at some tracks, say Phillip Islands, where you're spending a lot of time on the left-hand side of the tire, um, there can be a temperature differ a, a difference of 60 degrees between the, right and the, between the left and right side of the tire. And if you think of how soft a hot tire is and how, much, how quickly it gets stiff when it's not there, then just that shifting from side to side. Um, the difference in feedback in tires, that's what, that's what makes the difference. And I think this is exactly where riders are not, you know, when they feel something different, there are so many factors that go into that. The track temperature. The one thing that that, that Michelin do um, uh, do have is a relatively narrow operating window. They have made it much much wider, um, but they still have a relatively uh, um, a narrow operating window. And if the temperature 
goes up sort of two or three degrees or it drops two or three degrees, um, then that, change the, that changes the feedback from the, from the tire. It can also, you know, the, the, it can come from the asphalt. It can come from setup. There's so many places where, where it could come from. It could come from the tires as well. But it makes it so difficult to actually uh, to actually find out, and the riders are so sensitive to every single change that it makes it uh, it, it makes it really really difficult. Uh, one example that came up was um, uh, Valentino Rossi. They, they talked about you know like Valentino Rossi was incredibly incredibly good at understanding the feedback from the tires and explaining what was going on with the tires. And I remember I think someone talking about maybe Jerry Burgess, uh, who if you showed him a picture of Valentino Rossi uh, at a track, he could tell you what lap he was on because uh, Rossi can he was adjusting his riding style every single lap to uh, compensate for the way that the tires had changed. And this is something I think which is making a, a, a big difference. Riders are riders were not quite as good as Valentino Rossi, and to be perfectly honest, that's quite a long list. Um, you, you, they're not quite as good as, 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 as at doing that, at getting the feedback, at, at understanding how the tire is changing and how they need to change to adapt to it. Dave, you mentioned um, there was some criticism towards Michelin at the end of last year, particularly from one rider and particularly from one team in MotoGP. Um, was there an explanation eventually offered up as to what happened with Jorge Martin in uh, in Qatar in the uh, the Sunday race? Uh, yeah, I mean they took that tire back. They, I mean, they also showed us how they how they check the tire. You know, um, they literally strip the strip the rubber off the surface to examine the uh, i mean it gets x-rayed um they strip the rubber off to examine the cords underneath to make sure that they're all complete they do a tensile strength uh, test on it to see how much the, that has been how much the cords uh, have been weakened during the test there was nothing wrong with the tire when it came back they found nothing wrong with it um they also pointed out that when uh, jorge lorenzo when he went oh sorry jorge martin Jorge Martin, when he came off the, uh, uh, we, you saw that big spin as he uh, as he um, got off the line. The rider behind him had a similar spin, or well, had a smaller spin, but there seems to have been something at that point on the track where there was a little bit less grip, and that was it. Uh, and then Martin goes into a completely different um, riding mode, if you like. He's no longer. Um, you've got an idea in your head of of, of how the race is going to unfold. Um, if you are sort of, you know, at the front in the in the top two or three, then you you have an idea of how you're going to manage the race. When that goes wrong, and you suddenly find yourself back in what was it? I think he was down eighth or ninth or something after the uh, at the start. Um, you start running a completely different race. It's a completely different catch up race for a start. You've got everything on the bike changes. Because you're having to push it a lot more, uh, a lot harder. You're riding differently. Uh, you're loading the tires differently. Um, that is a much more logical explanation for why everything felt different to there actually being, uh, or there, there necessarily being something wrong with the tire. Um, so they were. I mean, they were not throwing Jorge Martin under the bus, but they were uh, strongly defending their corner. Um, they checked the tire and, you know, looking at their verification process, um, there was, you know, they do check these things very, very thoroughly. Uh, and that was what was, that was what was very, very interesting. 
Dave, I know we're asking you to essentially spoon your memory onto the table, but um, what, what did you learn from, you know, what Michelin had to say about the 25 tyres and, and, you know, what might be coming up and how it will help change MotoGP potentially? Uh, yeah, they didn't say a lot about the uh, about the 25 tyres. They did say um, they're going to be more consistent because they'll be using this special sort of, uh, sort of machine production process. Um, uh, they're moving towards a harder, uh, basically they're using, for 2024, they're using these new compounds which are harder but have the same levels of grip, which should help. Um, uh, they need to test the uh, 2025 uh, tyre as much as possible, um, but they're already running into the problem that factories and teams just don't want to test it. You know, it's right at the bottom of their, of their list of priorities. The, a factory and a team are only interested in testing the things that will make them faster next week. They're not at all interested in some theoretical future which where everything is going to change. So they're having problems to uh, to do this. I mean, we're, we're getting an extra test this year uh, at Magello, which is specifically to test the the, the, the front tire to see how that um, uh, to see how it reacts. Um, but there's always there's always a lot of resistance, um, and they do believe that this tire is for a start it's going to be more consistent. And secondly, it's going to be able to much better cope with the aerodynamics and with the loads which are which are being enforced. It's a different profile. It's a, it's a different carcass, a different construction as well. But because it is different, it really needs to be tested. Was there a consensus, Dave, that Michelin perhaps should have done this nearer the start of their stint as the sole tire supplier to MotoGP? I mean, it sounds like you know they had a lot of good information, especially with, well, I mean, no, the, the recent phase into um, renewable materials and whatever else that they're working towards. And, you know, it was more prevalent in Moto E, if, of course, but it does sound like it was a really valuable kind of exercise, certainly in PR, even though you weren't allowed to take any photos or do any kind of recordings. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I mean, <clears throat> yes, I think what they underestimated, because one of the things they said was, you know, when the when MotoGP first went uh, single tire, Michelin said, "We don't want to do this. We're not interested interested in it." And then they soon realised that that was a mistake, um, because you get so much data from racing that you cannot get anywhere else. Uh, and so it, it becomes an incredibly important test bed. So, for example, the Moto E tyres produced from renewable and recyclable materials. Um, and a lot of that is, you know, like where do you get, where do you source your materials? How easy is it to produce? Do you have to completely change the way that you produce uh, these uh, the, 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 these tyres or transform these materials into something you can put into tyres? You know, does that scale to industrial scale pr production? So there's lots of those, those sort of things. Um but I think when Michelin got into got back into MotoGP in 2016, they didn't because they didn't have much experience as a single tire supplier or another series. They didn't really think about how they're going to end up as a kicking boy uh, or as a whipping boy. How as 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 the, the the default to blame because whenever something goes wrong, the first thing you blame is the tires because the tires are such an important, such an absolutely crucial part. Um, on the motorcycle, arguably the most important part on the motorcycle is the feedback between the tyres uh, and the rider's brain, basically. That's what deter determines your performance. So any deviation, any slight sort of failure. And it's also it's the one thing that the, that the teams have no control over. And so it's it's a nice, easy thing to blame when, you know, if something goes wrong, then obviously it was the tyres that, uh, that get blamed. Um, and 
again, this is something, if you watch the news at night on the TV, what you see is all the things that are going horribly wrong in the world. You don't see, you know, like, you know, a man saves puppy from drowning or, uh, uh, you know, man gives his wife a big sloppy kiss for being such a lovely person. You don't get that. It's all, you know, murder and death and war and crime and uh, everything's terrible. And, and that's what's, that is what... Michelin didn't realise that they would they would only get the negative side and they never get the praise. I don't know, Dave. I mean, Liverpool won another trophy last weekend, so Neil was probably <laughs> watching every set of news broadcasts there were on TV. Um, but actually, Still am, actually, while Dave's talking. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, I mean, I was uh, on the plane to Qatar for the test. I was watching the two-parter Unridables series uh, made by Greenlight. And for, for international listeners, go onto YouTube and write Unride Unridables in the search bar, and you'll find these two fantastic um, programs made about 1980s, early 1990s, 500cc Grand Prix racing. And it is um, a, a timely reminder that tyres and tyre war was such a big factor in the result sheets and how people got on those. I mean, uh, Neil, I don't know if you can remember, but the differences between the Dunlops and the Michelins back then, I mean, if you didn't have decent Michelins, then you weren't going to be doing anything for more than a couple of laps. And so fans that are new to MotoGP and we're well over a decade that, you know, Bridgestone and Michelin have been the, told, the sole tyre suppliers um, through this, this vast era, uh, you know, racing was really down to the black stuff i mean it made such a big deal it did yeah exactly um and eventually i think what it boiled down to was it was when bridgestone really started um kicking michelin's ass in about 2007 when ducati were aboard the bridgestones and yamaha and honda were on the michelin's and rossi was getting left behind and then he actually made the controversial decision to switch to Bridgestones in 2008. And I think the uh, the sole t- our supplier, I think, came in the year after, Dave, if I'm not mistaken, 2009. 2009, 2009 yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Rossi, I, I remember making uh, consistently making the point in 2007 when he was losing the championship to Casey Stoner. People don't turn on their TVs on a Sunday to see the battle between Bridgestone and Michelin. They turn on their... TVs to see the battle between certain riders and even in some cases to see how manufacturers are getting on. They're not particularly invested in one tire brand or the other. And I think that is that is true. Um, you know, it always did throw up the occasional crazy strange result when you had different tire um, companies competing at the front. Um, but it was becoming, I think, ridiculously expensive. And um, yeah, you know, what we have seen in the last there's many reasons why the racing has been the way it has been uh, since 2016, but some of the close racing that we've had, I think, is partly down to, to the rubber that Michelin supply. The single tyres thing is actually quite interesting because um, the reason for the big, big difference was from, from 2006 to 2007, they basically changed the rules. So you had to declare your which tyres you'd be using on I think the Thursday or I can't remember if it was the Thursday or the Friday but it basically meant you had to have all of your tires already at the circuit uh, by then and that killed the 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 Saturday night special and the Saturday night special was um uh, Michelin would take uh, European tracks Michelin would take the data from Friday and they would and the weather forecast combine it with the weather forecast and they'd pick the perfect compounds to be racing on Sunday um, and that that was so good that, for example, uh, Tony Elias's win at Portugal in 2006, that was because he had a set of uh, tyres which Danny Pedrosa had, had rejected, didn't want. Um, 
it gave him such a boost in performance that he was able to win that race. Well, that and uh, and a terrible mistake by Kenny uh, Kenny Roberts Jr. But that's a, that, that, that's a different uh, different matter. A bit of a lap miscounting there. Um, but the uh, dawn of the FIM wanted to wanted to sort of like take away or, you know, level the playing field, take away Michelin's advantage of being able to tailor tyres to the exact set of circumstances. And so you had to supply your tyres previously. And Bridgestone had already been doing that. Bridgestone had been shipping their tyres over from Japan sort of, you know, weeks in advance. Um, And so they had to have tyres which operated in a much broader temperature uh, range. And so they just cleaned up. Um, they, they, They were just so much better precisely because of that. And that was how we ended up with a single tyre in, in 2009 because Michelin just couldn't keep up and nobody wanted to race the Michelins. I think they ended up with about, uh, there were maybe four teams who were, or four riders who who were willing to race the uh, Michelins. And, you know, Michelin said that it's just not worth our while doing it. Dave, you're like the ultimate used tyre for the podcast. Uh, we're fully appreciative <laughs> of your, uh, your trip to Michelin. So thanks for letting us know what went on. And, and ready to throw me away in the bin and dist- and um, uh, recycle me into something useful. No, yeah, when anything goes wrong, you're the person you blame. Don't worry, dear. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair. You can be reheated now and again. I'm sure. I'm sure your lovely wife can testify to that. So there we go. Uh, Neil, you've been rolling back to your days when you were a secretive DJ and MC to create some audio pics about Jorge Martin. Uh, what's in store? Uh, what is in store is um, basically a collection of insights from certain people in the paddock that work with Jorge Martin or have worked with him in the past, um, just to give a bit of an understanding as to how he does what he does. Um, we've obviously spoken quite a lot on the pod about how he was uh, probably one of the more, probably the most exciting thing to watch in MotoGP last year. Basically saved the championship from being a, a kind of a, a one-way cakewalk for Pekka Banyaya. Um, and uh, yeah, I was quite intrigued to know just how he did it. Now, we've also mentioned a few times in this podcast how the uh, the press officer uh, at Pramac Racing <laughs> maybe is uh, somewhat lacking in availability. So therefore, actually speaking to Jorge himself proved to be quite difficult. However, um his crew chief, Daniele Romagnoli, is a really interesting guy to speak to, um, as are people like Alessio Spargaro, Paolo Giovatti, and uh, Albert Valera, um, Jorge's personal manager. So, yeah, managed to speak to those different guys. And, um, yeah, that is uh, what we're about to hear. And, um, thankfully, your dulcet tones have been narrating its way through this little clip. So if everyone has their cocoa slippers and favourite cushions a hand, we'll begin. Whether you're a fan of the bullish swagger and fast talk or not, few could deny that Jorge Martin was the breakout star of 2023. Midway through last year, MotoGP was in danger of cruising to a snoozy conclusion before the Spaniard stepped up to take the fight to reign world champion Pecco Banyaya. Even though he just fell short, with some justification, Jorge could call himself the fastest rider in the world last year. So, with that in mind, the Paddock Pass podcast spoke to a number of figures close to the Spaniard to find out just how he did it. Firstly, natural talent. Jorge's speed was apparent from his first days in the Red Bull Rookies Cup. It was back in 2014 when a certain five-time world champion noted just how much corner speed he could carry through Mugello's long, fast curves. Jorge's personal manager, Albert Valera, picks up the story. I would say he was on on his second or third year, the year that he won. That was May. 
at that moment he was doing Mugello and I remember with Jorge Lorenzo we were watching the race the rookies cup in the motorhome Jorge and I together and I remember that Jorge told me wow that guy he's super good look at his speed corner and by that day he won the race in Mugello by three or four seconds and then we start talking at that moment he did a couple of races in Finchep replacing some I think arenas he was replacing arenas and I went to see him in Barcelona to see his family in Finchep um, it was like like love at first glance glance you know and we're happy to start working together it was that talent which carried Jorge to a world championship in 2018 and what really stood out in those years was his blistering one lap speed as Jorge amassed 20 pole positions in two seasons a frankly ludicrous number that talent was also very clear to current crew chief Daniele Romagnoli when Jorge stepped up to MotoGP at the start of 2021. I spoke to Daniele at the tail end of last year. First of all, he's a young rider. And this young rider, when he comes to, to MotoGP, already has a lot of uh, knowledge from previous categories. Means knowledge how the bikes work in the system. So was already a rider. Ready for the MotoGP means he knows the system out anti really power, the engine braking. And uh, so... This is the first time also when I was checking the data with him, I can explain something. And it looks like uh, really easy understanding what we are checking on the data. Also, sometimes we suggest something. Uh, you, you think, uh, maybe he didn't understand already. No, actually he said, I will do this on the track, and he did. So this was a very good point for me, this rider. Uh, also, he's, uh, he's very fast, this rider, like especially in the first corner. He's very fast, entering the corner, taking the corner speed very high. Also, his riding style is quite different from, let's say, the riders of five years ago, for example. He's leaning so much from the bike, and uh, so this helped him from uh, a good turning of the bike. Still, that blinding speed didn't translate into results in 2022 for numerous reasons. Chiefly, Martin never really got to grips with his Desmond Sedici GP22, which was inferior to Bagnaia's 21-22 hybrid. Then there was the small matter of the battle for the seat alongside Banyaya in the factory team in 2023. In ex-Ducati Sporting Director Paolo Chiabadi's eyes, the fact that Jorge was passed up for the factory seat always meant he would enter the year with a point to prove, with a chip in his shoulder. And as it turned out, this was an extra motivator which fueled Jorge's feats. This season, I was pretty sure that uh, he would you know, do extremely good. I think... Uh, for mainly for two reasons, I think uh, first of all, is uh, on a on a full GP23 bike. Last year, as you know, the Pramac riders and Marini they had um, a different engine version from the two factory riders, which was good, but maybe a more complicated to set up with the electronics. So this might have affected some of the results last year, and I also think knowing is a very proud proud character also he wanted to prove a point that uh, he was um, deserving a factory ride a full factory ride meaning the factory team or a full factory ride we decided what we decided because of uh, you know mainly it was uh, a moment in the year where uh, NAA had won four Grand Prix so there was a lot of expectation also from uh, uh, many, many people, including sponsors, that we would go in that direction. But when we took the decision, we assured Jorge that he would get, um, obviously, not only the same uh, um, financial treatment, but also exactly the same uh, technical package. 
Ducati's GP23 was a clear step up on what Martin was riding before, and he immediately gelled with the new bike at the first pre-season test. But even still in the first races of last year, there were some issues, and we didn't see Jorge really come into his own until arguably Mugello in the June of last year. That was because he still was honing his aggression. We saw several races and several rounds at the start of 2023 when Martin could not get past the riders in front, Jerez being a prime example. He was arguably one of the fastest guys on the track that day, but couldn't be as aggressive as Banyaya in the heat of the battle when fighting with the KTMs. That was all a far cry to the Martin we saw in the end of the year. And as Daniele Romagnoli explains, they found a change midway through the season which helped him be more aggressive in the battle. This is true. Always his speed has been fast when he was riding alone, but then also the combination of how these bikes develop, especially about the aerodynamic package, makes some difficulties on braking. So when you're following a rider, it's much more difficult to stop the bike. So if he was riding alone, he has a good pacing in harass. But then in race, when he was behind others, difficult to stop, difficult to stop, and he got passed by other riders. I remember also very well, Pecco passed him very easily. I mean, in general, uh, we weren't good enough like we are now on braking area. So, all this, for example, Peko was better. He was managing better, let's say, this kind of uh, aerodynamic package. And also his skill on braking is very good, Peko. So we start to work very, very hard about braking area and uh, how to improve this area. So it takes a couple of races. But then uh, we've seen already in Barcelona was already a good step, coming uh, quite good. Yeah, at the time, Aprilia was faster than us because we are ready. But then we did a step, especially in Barcelona. And from the time on, keeping the dead base setting, also we've seen even in Germany, in Sachsenring, how good was also Martin on braking as well, also with Peko. So I can say the biggest step we have done on braking, and once he got the confidence on braking hard, he can enter and pass other riders like he's doing these days. Other factors contributed to his speed last year as well. At the start of 2022, Martin often complained he was still suffering the physical side effects of his massive practice bill in Portugal the year before. There were no such complaints in 2023, when he repeatedly told us how his physical condition was better than ever. This was partly down to friend and mentor Alicia Spargro giving him some tips and training advice on how to arrive at a race weekend in the best physical shape possible. Um, I'm older than him, so m many things that 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 he's uh, experimenting right now, I already go through. So I'll try to to give some tips. Um, obviously, you know, guys, how how I love to to be good physically, and I was not like this when I was his age. So I'll try to to help him to don't do my mistakes and to be in shape earlier than me. And he learned a lot. Actually, I think he's in really good uh, physical condition also because I help him a lot. And then uh, he also. He's also really a family man. To be that young is really a family man. So he loves to spend time with my family because he's alone in Andorra. And uh, I think also it's, it's helping him a little bit. And it wasn't just that. Learning again from Espargaro, Martin knows the value of forging close bonds with those working in his garage. Despite desiring a spot in Ducati's factory team for 2023, he repeatedly talked up the family atmosphere in the Primark box and repeatedly appeared at home jibing at the lack of pressure he felt were compared to Banyaya as well, his factory rival. As Romagnoli explained, the Spaniard is responsible for creating that dynamic. And as Romagnoli recalls, Martin took his entire team to Punta Cana at the start of 2022 as a reward for helping him to his first MotoGP victory in Austria the year before. 
and as a person, I like him so much because the person is important how the rider makes also the feel inside the garage. Inside our garage, we really work really smooth, all the mechanics with him, a good relationship. Always, uh, they say most of the time, is positive, is making, not, I want to, don't want to say happiness, but feel that the team comfortable, talking with the mechanics and giving jokes and receiving jokes, sometimes even bad jokes means, okay, he's low, wow, oh, you are really slow, why, what do you do? You don't go nowhere if you go slow like that, but just joking with him. So the atmosphere with him is very good. And then also last year, um, after the first year, then when we celebrate the win in Austria, we went everybody in Punta Cana with him. This is the first experience for me with the rider, bring all the team and don't talk at all about motorbikes and GP, just have other, like, like a friend. And uh, for this reason, this rider is very good, how the atmosphere makes in the garage. The atmosphere we have in this garage for me is really amazing. The best team ever I ever work. So a mixture of natural talent, riding style, confidence, professional pride, Attitude towards fitness and forging close bonds with his team were all responsible for Martin's exceptional performance in 2023. So what of this season? Well, after a sterling second place in the World Championship, surely 2024 offers the perfect chance to go one better. To do that, however, Martin acknowledged he must handle pressure in a better way than he did towards the tail end of last season. One thing, though, could get in the way. Martin's feeling that Ducati has shunned him has never really gone away and comments at Valencia last November indicated he still feels bitter that he's not wearing the factory red. After his recent feats, there will certainly be more than one factory looking to secure his signature for 2025. Yet, testing performances suggest he'll be pushing Banyaya pretty hard for the ultimate honours once again. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. And I think one of the things that uh, sort of ties the Jorge Martin into Michelin is also you, we've seen he's got such a unique style. He's off the bike so far. Um, they're leaned over so far. Um, that, again, is down to the tyres. One of the that, That's a development of the tyres. We're getting to such insane lean angles because the tyres produce such incredible amounts of grip, you know, 60, 62, 63 degrees. Um, that's... I think 1.4, 1.5 G, something like that in the corner, uh, which is a you know ridiculous uh, cornering forces. And one of the reasons that Jorge can actually get his body so far off the bike is because the tyres are keeping him in place. Dave, you were vocal this week on Twitter about MotoGP potentially being sold uh, with Liberty Media being connected. Uh, CEO Carmelo Espeleto has already gone on record uh, to an Italian news site, I believe, uh, La Repubblica, uh, by saying anything can happen at any time. I mean, everybody has their price. Uh, God knows we're all quite so cheap on the, uh, the Paddock Pass podcast. <laughs> but even if there was an ownership change, then you would, you would assume that company, whether it's Liberty or someone else, you know, won't be tipping over the cart of business that makes money. Um, you might be able to arrange a few different things on display, but you're not going to see any radical changes in MotoGP. No, absolutely. You're not going to see any any changes. I don't think Liberty is going to buy it either because uh, we've seen this uh, before. The European Competition Commission uh, turned down, or well, they allowed CVC to buy um, uh, Formula One, uh, but only on the condition that they sold uh, MotoGP because otherwise there would be too much. Uh, ha having both F1 and MotoGP under the same umbrella would give too much uh, uh, market power, especially in the broadcast market in terms of broadcast rights. 
So that for that reason, I, I, I find it very difficult to believe that Liberty could or would be allowed to buy um, uh, Dorna. Uh, but certainly, yeah, I mean, like Bridgepoint will be looking for an exit. I saw the valuation by the uh, Spanish you know, uh, publication, uh, L'Expansion, of 4 billion, uh, 4 billion euros. Um, it was valued at about 1 billion when Dorna, uh, when CVC actually, or when Bridgepoint bought it from Dorna. Um, and so, in fact, I think a little bit less, so 760 or something like that. So, you know, Bridgepoint are looking to withdraw. They've paid themselves hundreds of millions in, in dividends. They're looking to actually get out. Um, this is what venture, for, venture capital firms do, they, uh, or investment funds do. They put money in and they, you know, they try to extract as much profit from it as possible. Um, whether that's a good thing or not is a, is a separate issue for discussion. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the, the, the Bridgepoint would be looking to something like triple their investment uh, when they do sell it. So we shall see. And of course, it, you know, these things are always for sale. Uh, if someone comes along with a very, very large amount of money, then they are going to um, then you know Dawn or or Bridgepoint would be foolish to turn it down, and whoever takes it over is not going to you know kill the goose that's got, that's laying the golden egg. It, uh, it there's MotoGP and Dorna still have a few you know that they have issues. There's a lot of things they could do better. They do think a lot of things really well. There's things they could do better, especially in terms of commercially exploiting uh, the the championship. But um, yeah, they generate a lot of money, and the one thing that they're not going to do that, that a new owner would do would be to th- threaten that. I'm interested in the business mechanics or the dynamic of it all because if you look behind the scenes, then MotoGP doesn't have a great, enormous amount of outside sponsors. Uh, you know, the main kind of revenue stream does seem to be, uh, you know, circuit sanctioning fees as well as, of course, the TV rights. Uh, that itself is perhaps a market that's in flux because are people now really paying good money to be watching live sports still. I mean, there seems to be a lot of catch up going on. I do wonder if that whole model of exclusivity to one particular channel or broadcaster or stream is really going to be that relevant in five years time. Uh, that's, that's, that's something where I think a lot of Dorna's not only their profit margin, but their, their balance sheets and their budgets to essentially move the championship around the globe is taking, you know, a, a swallowing a lot of it. And, you know, do they maximize one particular area of the world or do they look towards a different kind of, you know, a bigger audience share, but then trying to get that commercial nuance involved? It's, it's kind of, it's complicated. Uh, no, I mean, it absolutely, absolutely is complicated. complicated. What you have to remember, circuits are paying somewhere between 8 and 10 million euros to host a race. Um on average, there are those there are tracks who are paying a lot more, tracks who are paying a lot less. Um, but the thing about live sports, which makes them a, a attractive to broadcasters and also to streamers, um, is that they're live. They only happen once. They're happening at at, at one time. Uh, that gives them an added value. Things like TV series and films and all the rest of it. Um, that's a that's a shifting market, if you like. You know, those those things can happen at any time. You know, you can you can you can watch that at any time, um, uh, and people will watch it, although or, or they won't. Whereas with a you know a live a live sporting event has an an element of anticipation uh, that uh, streaming that you know other broadcasts 
forms just don't have. That makes it very um, that makes it very attractive. I mean, you see a lot of money going into still going into live sports. You know, especially things like football uh, and uh, the other top tier sports. But MotoGP is benefiting from that. Um, I mean, in the end, you end up really with a huge problem of where does the money come from? Sponsorship is is going to be a problem because you know the more that you know, if you give the uh, right to a broadcaster who is charging, who, who is paying a lot to put it behind a paywall um, for whatever reason, then that means that you're losing a lot of sponsorship because you're losing, you know, a large amount, amount of audience. And that's one of those chicken and egg things where uh, e- either way, it's really, really difficult. Well, if you take the most televised sport in the world, I mean, it has to be football. And it's a case whereby I think fans now, instead of looking at a certain date or a certain time to watch a match, can flick on the TV and, and any evening during a week and find a match. It's more like the, the sport is provided as a form of, uh, there's always football on. You can always find a game. And the, that's kind Tell of- Tell me about it. <laughs> And that's that's kind of different to to MotoGP, of course, which is always going to be two p.m. on a Sunday. I mean, you must, you have to orientate yourself around. Perhaps, of course, fans of the sport know where to find it. They know what time is going to happen. But then to get new people on board, you know, they, they're going to be finding out about the race or the action or the clips from a different place. And I just wonder how these lucrative TV deals will end up surviving in the future, and perhaps. Uh, they will still exist, but at a lower cost. And then Dorna has to sort of um, reevaluate its revenue model. Yeah, but I think you have to remember, I mean, <clears throat> like no one is putting, shall we say, late Norient behind a uh, behind a paywall and expecting billions of people to, uh, to stump up lots and lots of cash for it. No offense to late Norient. I know nothing about football except I'm liking the name late Norient. Um, however, uh, you know, the Champions League, uh, World Cup, European Cup. I mean, uh, the, I think there's going to be some kind of international championship this summer. Um, and I presume a lot of people will want to see that. And that's where you're seeing the astronomical um, amounts of money uh, changing hands. And that, again, is uh, it, it's more of a unique event. And so I think I think the bigger problem for for Dorna, and this is thing something we've talked about before, is having you know like we've got twenty two races. The additional value of that twenty second race is much much lower than the additional value of like the seventeenth or the eighteenth race. Uh, at some point, it just becomes too much. Something I'd like to discuss, and I'll come to you first, Neil, for your opinion. Um, MotoGP content and the portrayal of the riders. Uh, does MotoGP need to get cooler by bigging up the the gnarly nature of the sport, or should it go more kind of infantile and and create this personality led content? You know, I, I just wonder whether trying to make you know Alex Rins, Jack Miller, you know Juan Mir look kind of goofy and uh, you know I don't know appealing to a very particular age demographic is the way to go when maybe you could be showing them sliding a rear tire or pulling a cool wheelie or you know what's kind of your thoughts on that do you think it's it's going in the wrong direction if that's such a, a concept i don't see any reason why you can't do both i mean there's people that show up to see them doing the the, the kind of the skids and the the wheelies and the, the kind of the spectacular stuff on track but i think there's also a demand to see a bit more behind the helmet um, with the riders away from the track. Um, and I think that's probably something that can be that can be worked on, um, presenting the riders in a, a kind of more attractive way, in a way that is maybe a little more relatable. Um, I don't think it's necessarily the easiest thing when you compare it to something like, say, football or, say, Formula One, 
you know, MotoGP still is very much a niche sport. It is still very much dominated by two nationalities in particular. Um, English maybe doesn't come as naturally or as easily to some of those Spaniards or Italians as it does in maybe other realms, especially in Formula One, where the level of English is is near on perfect for everyone. And therefore, the ability to communicate kind of freely and and, and kind of fearlessly in front of the camera is maybe a little higher. Um, but yeah, I don't see why there's 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 no there's a reason why you can't just show both of those things. I mean, the internet is kind of, uh, it's limitless, it's fast. And, um, you know, I think you are wanting to, to see kind of both of those things. I think, yeah, you want to, you want to basically be following something that's cool, especially as a younger person. Um, and, uh, the stuff that MotoGP guys do on the track is cool and trying to portray them as cool off the track, I think is maybe a challenge that is still in, still in process. Uh, my personal view is I think you just need to communicate with them. I mean, if somebody like Miguel Oliveira wants to be presented on social media as a family man, then that's the kind of content you need to be creating around him. If somebody wants to be the motocrosser or somebody else wants to be the gym animal, we know Alesha Spargaro, for example, from his own YouTube videos is heavily into his cycling as well as his family. Uh, that's a way, you know, perhaps MotoGP needs to push him more. Um, as an example, in Supercross a couple of years ago, I mean, as part of opening ceremonies, they always have the intro, these huge videos they pump out on the massive screens they have in the stadia over there. And Eli Tomac, you know, the champion from two years ago, uh, was basically presented as the hunter. He's a guy who lives sort of in the depths of Colorado, likes to get out with a bow um and and hunts and he was sort of they made a whole video play around that at the moment jet lawrence who's kind of the sort of mark marquez or the pedro acosta if you like of the of the champ of the series he's got a very cool sort of intro video where he's walking into like a boxing ring um it's fantastically edited looks like a music video but then he emerges into the stadium like he's sort of just walking in it's sort of seamless it works but then also as part of the intro video they have this kind of infantile um TikTok dance going on where they're trying to explain the race format and everything else. And I see, I think kids will look at it and laugh forever. But I also think if we talk about MotoGP in particular for the next couple of seasons, these guys are going to be topping 220 miles per hour each weekend. And I think that's a degree of extreme performance and gnarly kind of uh, balls to the wall activity that doesn't really marry with that kind of um, japery. Uh, yeah, um, well, first of all, I'd like to say I'm a 59-year-old man, so asking me what to, <laughs> how to attract teenagers is not going to be uh, the, 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 the... I'm not able to give the best possible advice. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, I, I think we have to sort of like figure out what the essence is of motorcycling and try and, try and present that, what the, what the essence of MotoGP is. The risk is that the companies involved, especially the factories, want too much control. They're too afraid of, you know, damage to their image. That, to me, is the is, is the biggest problem. You know, they're they're they're, they're very conservative and, and afraid of taking risks. And we need to take more risks to make it more attractive. Um, the, the the story behind darts. I mean, darts used to be an extremely tedious sport full of um, fat old men, and it still is. <laughs> it, 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 it still is, but now they've all got mohawks and personalities because they've been told to have a personality because uh, Barry Hearn, the promoter, took darts and turned it into an entertainment product. Um, you know, he, he, he gave people a, 
um, a personality and told them to be that personality. Now, I don't think that's going to work with MotoGP, um, but it's that sort of approach, this kind of personality approach. But that also means you've got to allow people to go out and be personalities. I think I mean, Dorna are trying to pivot with this and they have been trying over the last two years. I mean, the MotoGP social media reach now is like 50 million, I think. And I saw a press release. They've estimated it's more than 120 million with all the paddock members, the riders and the brands combined. Um, you look at Mark Marquez, for example, I think his partner is an influencer. I mean, Mark has 7 million followers on Instagram. Um, there's almost 3 million people at the circuits throughout 2023 alone. There is vast audience potential there, and it's. I think it's really good that Dorna are looking at themselves, thinking we need to work harder, we need to work better, we need to sort of market the sport and not just rest on the laurels of the the TV uh, contracts and letting the broadcasters do the promotional work. So uh, I just think they need to maybe apply some more rounded international thinking to how they're they're making use of these riders and and importantly communicate with the riders themselves because if you have them on board then they're going to be much more engaged and much more enthusiastic about doing that kind of off the bike work yeah but the the trouble is that riders don't give a shit they just want to win (laughs) well if they can make more money then i guess they might be slightly more interested if they if they have to sacrifice winning to make more money they will go for winning Oh, Dave, so pragmatic. Uh, we'll end in that subject. KTM refreshed their Naked Bike Duke range for 2024, and the KTM 990 Duke is now the prince to the 1390 and the 1290 Super Dukes with some other exciting street bikes to come from the Austrians in the next few months. The 990 is slightly cheaper than the Super Duke, but just as badass with talks for days. A lot more planted, but an extremely agile sense of handling and advanced electronics and other features. Look at KTM.com for more details on the KTM 990 Duke and get to an authorized dealer now to ask about a test ride. As mentioned at the top of the show, right at the beginning, we're delighted to have Danny Pedrosa on the Paddock Pass podcast. The 38-year-old MotoGP legend talks about the life of a test rider, those wild cards, the differences in bikes, and why he's a bit more sympathetic to the media these days. I mean, he stomached me on I throwing questions at him for a good 15 to 20 minutes, so I guess that was um, you know, a case of proof in point. Danny, it's great to have you on the Paddock Pass podcast. Uh, we've got some questions for you. First of all, um, can you explain to some of our listeners, you know, how is the contract of a MotoGP test rider? I mean, how many kind of days do you have to, to work? And is it a situation where KTM can call you and say, we have something new, come to Mugello next week? I mean, how does it work for you exactly? Hi, hi. Hello to everyone and thanks for having me. And um, yes, I, 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 have a, I have a contract where you have more or less specified the days you have to, to write. Obviously, there is a plan, uh, a plan with the team where uh, we, we know how many days more or less we can do. So it's, that's what more or less the contract says. But obviously, if we have any situation where at any given time we have some change schedule or we have to add a few more days of testing, um, then we do it. it it's, we are flexible on this on both, on both ends. Danny, I have a question. When you look at each MotoGP test rider for each factory, they have quite different profiles. I mean, you're a three-time world champion, but then Ducati has someone like Michele Piero, who won, I think, just one race in Moto2. Lorenzo Salvatore in Aprilia never really, I think, even raced in, in MotoGP that much. Um, 
in your opinion, what actually makes a good test rider and how different is it, the qualities you need to be a good test rider, how different is it to the qualities you need to be a good racer? Well, I think I think you mentioned it very well. So every manufacturer has a different approach a little bit on, on the, the rider. I think this is due to two, two factors. One is availability. So you not always can get a certain type of, of rider to do that role. Uh, so you have to you have to go along with what you can get, and the other the other uh, thing is that um, every manufacturer is in a different position. So you have like in my case with KTM when I joined the the team itself had very low experience in MotoGP, so it's it's totally different um, procedure you have to go through uh, instead of someone like Honda or or Yamaha who has a long history in the in the championship. Therefore, maybe you you have other priorities as well. But nonetheless, it's always uh, it's always very important whether you you have a good feedback and the communication between the rider and the engineer is correct. Yeah, I think I think the, that 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 I would say is the first quality that the communication or the language it's it's uh, it's good for both for both ends. And the second, I would say, you have to be somehow a good leader because you you have to be sure of what you're doing, what you're saying, and what 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 are you trying to steer the team to. So, with today's uh, rules, it's difficult to to always make the perfect choice because you have so so um, detailed options that afterwards you can't change and so if you make a mistake you then have to deal with that for the whole season and that's why it's super important to to have it very clear and to express that to the team in a way that they are confident about it in qatar uh, danny alessia spargaro was saying how physical the aprilia is due to the aerodynamics and the downforce um how much of a difference do you feel now say with the latest rc16 compared to your last year of racing i mean is it different worlds <laughs> Well, it is every time is 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 going up. Uh, the physical demanding with these arrows um, is going up. Uh, you 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 have much more difficulty to handle the bike left to right, and also to to maneuver when you are following someone, and therefore the speeds are higher in the in the corner. So more G and more high speeds uh, in the intersections make the bike less agile. So you are also setting the bike with this aero in a way to be uh, way more stable into the brakes or way more stable in the straights. So more stability also is less agility. So the constant fight I have with my, with my uh, friends in aero department in in, uh, in KTM is actually this one no they they make something that in the numbers it looks super uh, you know much more efficient in in aerodynamics in load in in drag etc but then when you try it on the bike you barely can move the bike and decide what you want to do with it so that takes your that takes time of your inputs on the bike to actually do things in between the corners and when you are slower or you have less input to the bike, then you are 
more um, you follow more the, what the bike is doing and not not the bike following you. So that's the constant um, argument we, we we have in order to find the balance between the good aero in terms of numbers for for the team and load, and then the good one that can still be agile enough to to handle the bike in the way you want. And also not not to blow up your arms and 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 have uh, have physical issues at the end of it of the race. Yes, Danny, my question is very similar to Adam's. You mentioned how different the bikes are now with all the aero. Are they more enjoyable to ride now, in your opinion, or do you prefer just from pure enjoyment side of things? Do you prefer it, the older bikes? Easy question. Uh, I prefer the older ones. Uh, yeah, and yes, it's true. I mean, we are where we are now here, and we we I don't complain. But I mean, it, the bikes without the aero, they were more they were more fun for sure. How um how fast does development work at KTM? I mean, for example, if you try a chassis and you say, guys, we need more turning, I mean, how quickly do they then bring something for you to try again? Is it just as an example? I know everything's kind of different. Mm, yes. I mean, it depends on the time and depends on the priority. Let's say, for for instance, the, the turning thing that you mentioned in KTM, uh, when I joined them, it, actually, this was an issue. And so we worked... We work a lot on that for a lot for two three years, and so it was a constant like chassis suspension, triple cams, uh, shocks, uh, things that could touch that era. So uh, we were we were all the time uh, having updates and and ideas to try to modify the, the turning. Uh, until we got it. So once we got it, then we we moved on to a different priority. But when Actually, when it's the priority, I would say it's rather quickly. And uh, so far, the reaction of the factory has been always very proactive and very reliable because many times you also can try a thousand things, but nothing is working. Um, but at least every step we tried and kind of more or less show us the the next step afterwards to to implement a, an improvement. So I, I would say I would say re, re, relatively fast. Yeah, fast. Danny, we saw. Um, I think Brad Binder said after Sepang it was the best or one of the best preseason tests that he's ever had. And Pit Byer just before the Qatar test was telling us journalists that he expects KTM to be fighting for the World Championship this year. That's the that's the undoubted aim. From what you've seen during preseason um, and what you've experienced on the bike, do you think KTM is in that position? Are they ready to fight now for the WGP World Championship? Well, it's uh, it's hard to say for me if we, we we are going to we are going to be at the end of the championship. They're fighting for the title on on points. At the moment, it's too early. But looking at uh, the two tests in preseason, uh, it looks like Ducati still have an edge on on us. Uh, I think the riders are pretty happy with the latest um, bike development they have, and they are really performing very well. So I think I think um, having said that, also it's true that the track uh, conditions were pretty much perfect in both tests so we have to add to that the 
the thing that uh, once you are in a GP, um, weather is changing. Sometimes you have rain, sometimes it's cold, hot. So that, that won't make the track conditions perfectly so that maybe the other brands cannot extremize his potential at best, you know, because you have some limitations from track uh, due to the grip, low grip, or or maybe also we have to see the factor of the new Pirelli's Moto2 and Moto3, how they play a part um, with the Michelin Raba on race. So, um, so far in the test, uh, it's been just Michelin. So we know that when when the track is full of Raba of Michelin, then the lap times are incredible fast and, and the, the feeling on the bike is incredible. But once you mix certain other situations, could be that maybe the difference are not as we, we have seen in the test. So it's still unknown uh, and we'll see. But I think what Pete is also referring to, it's a mentality thing. So, uh, so far the team has been, um, has been trying to catch up, catch up, catch up every time because we, we, we are coming from, um, from way back. But I think now it's coming a time where the mentality has to be to approach that goal. Uh, so I don't know if we will be at the end or not fighting, but at least the mentality is there. So, and and that's, that's how I see it. Does making one or two wild cards per season or every two seasons allow you to calm the competitiveness inside you? Uh, I mean, do you have any other activities that you, you do for that adrenaline? No, actually, when once I retired, I was I was perfectly perfectly fine with that. So I don't have that will like I used to have when I was uh, when I was a racer. So I'm happy that uh, I don't have this anxiety to 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 race. Speaking about when you do race, Danny, um, I know you won thirty one MotoGP races, but last year you surprised everyone. And you finished fourth at Misano, I think just four seconds off the victor there. Your third race in five years, which was quite a, a ridiculous result. I mean, would that rank among some of your best performances, would you say? Um, how would you kind of assess what you showed last year at MotoGP? Because it was it was quite phenomenal. Yes, I, I'm really, first of all, I, I'm really happy because, I mean, several points in, in that race, actually, I, I was almost five years off competition. Plus, um, um, plus, I'm older, and also um, I'm racing new generation, and as well uh, all the technological development. So you you have new tools and things, and 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 how the rules are different in the race. So I was still, um, I was very happy to still perform with all that change. Um, and I'm racing a different bike. So I always was racing a Honda and this time I'm, I was racing a KTM. So it's, it's good for me to, to do uh, such a great uh, result with a different manufacturer. Um, but uh, no, I won't, I won't consider one of my best because in the past, obviously, I was injured and I had to fight for titles and you have a different type of pressure in that scenario of the wildcard. Obviously, you want to do good, but you don't have the pressure of a championship or, or, or doing a good result. Last one from me, Danny. Um, sometimes we see you at the Grand Prix races. Um, how exactly do you help 
Jack and Brad. And, um, you know, do you actually enjoy doing some of the media work now, like appearing on the zone and doing other stuff? <laughs> uh, I'm trying, I'm trying. Uh, I'm trying to adapt to this. Um, as you all know, I'm not super um, natural thing for me to do the media stuff. But uh, yes, it's true that this opportunity with Dathon is giving me the time to, to approach it in a different way, also to be part of the other side, uh, which I was all the time facing. And and then, uh, yeah, I kind of feel a different vibe now on, on that aspect. So I'm really, really keen to keep working more and keep uh, trying to entertain some of the fans of MotoGP. And... So I, yeah, I think uh, I'm not, uh, I'm not, I don't think I still know very well all what is behind this media stuff, but I, I'm, I'm fine. What was the actual question? Um, no, just uh, how you might help Jack and Brad and, and, and riders. That's true. Yeah. So I try actually when I went, when I appeared to a certain GP, I actually try not to do anything. So... I go out, I watch, and I try to see what is going on on the track, what is going on with the GP, what is going on with the team inside the box, etc. But unless the riders ask me, I'm not trying to approach because as I'm not there every weekend, I don't want either to make a change where I when I appear to one GP. So I try just to stay there if they need or they want or they feel like. Then I always can give um, some of um, some some opinion uh, on some of the things they want to know. But um, I personally try to stay a little bit back and not to change the atmosphere of what they have often. Danny, just two more questions from me. The first is, I remember back in 2006, the excitement that everyone felt about you stepping up to the MotoGP World Championship as a, a three-time world champion. There was a lot of excitement about that. We have a similar situation this year with a certain Spanish teenager stepping up into MotoGP. Can you understand the kind of excitement, not just in Spain, but I think everywhere, that people want to see Pedro in MotoGP? And, and how would you assess his performances during preseason? Because in Sepang in particular, it looked really, really special. Yes, it's. Uh, I mean, every time, every time you see someone strong coming up to MotoGP, like Mark did in his time when I did, or Jorge Lorenzo or Casey Stoner, then there is there is this atmosphere where this expectation is generated by the fans, by the media, and and also at the end by the results. So I think um, Pedro is someone who is already showing how fast he's learning. And I've been with him in Malaysia and I don't think he needs too much guidance. So by himself, he's already knowing where he has to go, where what needs to be done. And so he knows where he's heading. That's what I'm trying to say. And that's leading him to learn super quick. And of course, this class is complicated and the rivals are also all very strong. So it's not going to be easy, but I think the, the learning curve is going to be faster than expected. Okay, interesting. And Danny, if I give you 50 euros and I tell you, you have to make a bet <laughs> on who's going to win the world championship this year. Who's it going to be? Put you on the spot. I mean, it's 
I would bet for I would bet for for us obviously for even if I lose my 50 euros but uh, in in I would say at the moment looks Peko looks very strong uh, no no doubt about that um, but in the championship you never know you have we have many many races uh, many starts injuries can happen bike failures can happen or other riders mistakes can affect your race as well so it's 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 nothing decided even though at the moment he is very fast danny thanks ever so much for joining us on the podcast and uh, we look forward to learning what race you'll be joining us um, at this year thank you just two weeks left to sign up to our Patreon channel for the year with a 10% discount for lots more extra content through 2024, including our daily paddock notes roundups from each day of a MotoGP Grand Prix. In less than two weeks, we'll be closing our eyes and whizzing a mouse pointer around the screen to decide who gets two Grand Prix paddock passes to a fixture of their choice over the Qatar GP weekend. Also, it's Alpine Stars Fantasy League time. We've started the league. Simply click on Game Hub on MotoGP.com and create a profile. Build your team. It's really easy with four riders, a team, and a brand, and then join our league. Search for Alpine Stars Paddock Pass podcast, and for the eventual winner, we'll have some goodies on the post, as well as bragging rights against our own pathetic efforts, even though we're at every sodding GP. Uh, guys, we talked about this a bit on the Paddock Pass podcast before, but I think, you know, Bagnaya pretty much has to be uh, the first pick for everybody, right? And then we have to just fudge around the, the budgeting issues for everybody else. Uh, that's the way that it works. You know, you, you, you try and look for the right way to do it. Uh, you try and look for the best value. Um, and that is um, what I always manage to get wrong. <laughs> Yeah, you need to look at uh, the certainties, obviously. I mean, I say this as if I'm like some sort of old series, <laughs> really, I'm, I'm as clueless as you guys. Um, but yeah, I mean, my tactic last year was the manufacturer was obviously going to be Ducati because there's at least going to be one bike there every weekend. And there's normally a decent chance that it could be the factory team or maybe the Grassini team or the Pramac team. Um, you know, choose one of them at your will. And then it's about kind of filling up the other spaces. So, yeah, start with a couple of certainties and then work from there. Yeah, don't do what I did last year and completely forget about it. It was like three GPs after Jerez. I realized Danny Pedrosa was still in my team. Um, so obviously picking up a shitload of points in that system. So uh, I think it has to be set before Q1. Is that right, guys? I think yes. that's the cutoff point. So, yeah, join us on the Alpine Stars Paddock Pass podcast, Fantasy League, and uh, win some prizes. Um, we should have another special guest for the official MotoGP preview show next week. It's prediction time, Dave, your favorite period of the year. Uh, <laughs> it will be the USA's last Grand Prix winner in the Premier class. Uh, we'll be making our bold and brash calls for 2024, talking about why we love and loathe Qatar and uh, much more. 